0: Volume One, Chapter One of Lady Anna. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. Lady Anna by Anthony Trollope. Volume One, Chapter One The Early History of Lady Lovell. Women have often been hardly used by men, but perhaps no harder usage, no fiercer cruelty was ever experienced by a woman. Than that which fell to the lot of Josephine Murray from the hands of Earl Lovell, to whom she was married in the parish church of Applethwaite, a parish without a village lying among the mountains of Cumberland, on the first of June, eighteen eleven. That her marriage was valid according to all the forms of the church, if Lord Lovell were then capable of marrying, no one ever doubted, nor did the Earl ever allege that it was not so. Lovell Grange is a small house, surrounded by a small domain small as being the residence of a rich nobleman, lying among the mountains which separate Cumberland from Westmorland, about ten miles from Keswick, very lovely, from the brightness of its own green sward and the luxuriance of its wild woodland, from the contiguity of overhanging mountains, and from the beauty of Lovell Tarn, a small lake belonging to the property, studded with little islands, each of which is covered with its own thicket of hollies, birch, and dwarfed oaks. The house itself is poor— ill-built, with straggling passages and low rooms, and is a sombre, ill-omened-looking place. When Josephine Murray was brought there as a bride, she thought it to be very sombre and ill-omened. But she loved the lakes and mountains, and dreamed of some vague, mysterious joy of life which was to come to her from the wildness of her domicile. I fear that she had no other ground, firmer than this, on which to found her hopes of happiness. She could not have thought Lord Lovel to be a good man when she married him, and it can hardly be said that she loved him. She was then twenty-four years old, and he had counted double as many years. She was very beautiful, dark, with large, bold, blue eyes, with hair almost black, tall, well-made, almost robust, a well-born, brave, ambitious woman, of whom it must be acknowledged that she thought it very much to be the wife of a lord. Though our story will be concerned much with her sufferings, the record of her bridal days may be very short. It is with struggles that came to her in after-years that we shall be most concerned, and the reader therefore must need be troubled with no long description of Josephine Murray as she was when she became the Countess Lovell. It is hoped that her wrongs may be thought worthy of sympathy, and may be felt in some sort to atone for the ignoble motives of her marriage. The Earl when he found his bride, had been living almost in solitude for a twelvemonth. Among the neighbouring gentry in the Lake Country he kept no friendly relations. His property there was small, and his character was evil. He was an English Earl, and as such known in some unfamiliar fashion to those who know all Earls. But he was a man never seen in Parliament, who had spent the greater part of his manhood abroad, who had sold estates in other counties, converting unentailed acres into increased wealth, but wealth of a kind much less acceptable to the general English aristocrat than that which comes direct from land. Lovellgrange was his only remaining English property, and when in London he had rooms at an hotel. He never entertained, and he never accepted hospitality. It was known of him that he was very rich, and men said that he was mad. Such. Was the man whom Josephine Murray had chosen to marry, because he was an Earl he had found her near Keswick, living with her father in a pretty cottage looking down upon Derwentwater, a thorough gentleman for Captain Murray had come of the right Murray's, and thence he had carried her to Lovell Grange. She had brought with her no penny of fortune, and no settlement had been made on her. Her father, who was then an old man, had mildly expostulated. But the ambition of the daughter had prevailed, and the marriage was accomplished. The beautiful young woman was carried off as a bride. It will be unnecessary to relate what efforts had been made to take her away from her father's house without bridal honours, but it must be told that the earl was a man who had never yet spared a woman in his lust. It had been the rule, almost the creed of his life, that woman was made to gratify the appetite of man and that the man is but a poor creature who does not lay hold of the sweetness that is offered to him. He had so lived as to teach himself that those men who devote themselves to their wives, as a wife devotes herself to her husband, are the poor lubberly clods of creation, who had lacked the power to reach the only purpose of living which could make life worth having. Women have been to him a prey, as the fox is a prey to the huntsman and the salmon to the angler but he had acquired great skill in his sport, and could pursue his game with all the craft which experience will give. He could look at a woman as though he saw all heaven in her eyes, and could listen to her as though the music of the spheres was to be heard in her voice. Then he could whisper words which, to many women, were as the music of the spheres, and he could persevere, abandoning all other pleasures, devoting himself to the one wickedness with a perseverance which almost made success certain. But with Josephine Murray he could be successful on no other terms than those which enabled her to walk out of the church with him as Countess Lovell. She had not lived with him six months before he told her that the marriage was no marriage, and that she was his mistress there was an audacity about the man which threw aside all fear of the law, and which was impervious to threats and interference. He assured her that he loved her, and that she was welcome to live with him, but that she was not his wife, and that the child which she bore could not be the heir to his title, and could claim no heirship to his property. He did love her, having found her to be a woman of whose company he had not tired in six months. He was going back to Italy, and he offered to take her with him. But he could not, he said, permit the farce of her remaining at Lovell Grange and calling herself the Countess Lovell. If she chose to go with him to Palermo, where he had a castle, and to remain with him in his yacht, she might for the present travel under the name of his wife. But she must know that she was not his wife, she was only his mistress. Of course she invoked every Murray in and out of Scotland. Of course there were many threats. A duel was fought up near London, in which Lord Lovell consented to be shot at twice, declaring that after that he did not think that the circumstances of the case required that he should be shot at any more. In the midst of this, a daughter was born to her, and her father died, during which time she was still allowed to live at Lovell Grange. But what was it expedient that she should do? He declared that he had a former wife when he married her, and that therefore she was not— And could not be his wife. Should she institute a prosecution against him for bigamy, thereby acknowledging that she was herself no wife and that her child was illegitimate? From such evidence as she could get, she believed that the Italian woman whom the Earl in former years had married had died before her own marriage. The Earl declared that the real Countess had not paid her debt to nature till some months after the little ceremony which had taken place in Applethwaite Church. In a moment of weakness, Josephine fell at his feet and asked him to renew the ceremony. He stooped over her, kissed her, and smiled. "'My pretty child,' he said, "'why should I do that?' He never kissed her again. What should she do? Before she had decided, he was in his yacht sailing to Palermo sailing, no doubt, not alone. What should she do? He had left her an income, sufficient for the cast-off mistress of an earl, some few hundreds a year, on condition that she would quietly leave Lovell Grange, cease to call herself a countess, and take herself and her bairn whither she would. Every abode of sin in London was open to her for what she cared. But what should she do? It seemed to her to be incredible that so great a wrong should befall her and that the man should escape from her and be free from punishment, unless she chose to own the baseness of her own position by prosecuting him for bigamy. The Murrays were not very generous in their succour, as the old man had been much blamed for giving his daughter to one of whom all the world knew nothing but evil. One Murray had fired two shots on her behalf, in answer to each one of which the Earl had fired into the air. But beyond this, the Murrays could do nothing. Josephine herself was haughty and proud, conscious that her rank was greater than that of any of the Murrays with whom she came in contact. But what should she do? The Earl had been gone five years, sailing about the world she knew not where, when at last she determined to institute a prosecution for bigamy. During these years she was still living at the Grange, with her child, and the courts of law had allotted her some sum by way of alimony till her cause should be decided. But upon this alimony she found it very difficult to lay her hands, quite impossible to lay her hands upon the entirety of it. And then it came to pass that she was eaten up by lawyers and tradesmen, and fell into bad repute as asserting that claims made against her should legally be made against the very man whom she was about to prosecute because she was not his wife. And this went on, till further life at Lovell Grange became impossible to her. In those days there was living in Keswick a certain Mr. Thomas Thwaite, a tailor who, by degrees, had taken a strong part in denouncing the wrongs to which Lady Lovell had been subjected. He was a powerful, sturdy man with good means for his position, a well-known radical in a county in which radicals had never been popular, and in which fifty years ago they were much rarer than they are now. At this time, Keswick and its vicinities were beginning to be known as the abodes of poets, and Thomas Thwaite was acquainted with Southey and Wordsworth. He was an intelligent, upstanding, impulsive man, who thought well of his own position in the world, and who could speak his mind. He was tall, massive, and square, tender-hearted and very generous, and he hated the Earl of Lovell with all his heart. Once the two men had met since the story of the Countess's wrongs had become known, and the tailor had struck the girl to the ground. This had occurred as the Earl was leaving Grange, and when he was starting on his long journey. The scene took place after he had parted from his Countess, whom he never was to see again. He rose to his feet and rushed at the tailor, but the two were separated, and the Earl thought it best to go on upon his journey. Nothing further was done as to the blow and many years rolled by before the Earl came back to Cumberland. It became impossible for the Countess and her daughter, the young Lady Anna, as she was usually called, to remain at Lovell Grange, and they were taken to the house of Mr Thwaite in Keswick as a temporary residence. At this time the Countess was in debt, and already there were lawsuits as to the practicability of obtaining payment of those debts from the husband's estate and, as soon as it was determined that the prosecution for bigamy should be instituted, the confusion in this respect was increased. The Countess ceased to call herself a Countess, as she certainly would not be a Countess should she succeed in proving the Earl to have been guilty. And, had he been guilty of bigamy, the decree under which alimony was assigned to her would become void. Should she succeed, she would be a penniless, unmarried female with a daughter, her child would be unfathered and base, and he, as far as she could see, would be beyond the reach of punishment. But in truth, she and her friend the tailor were not in quest of success. She and all her friends believed that the earl had committed no such crime. But if he were acquitted, then would her claim to be called Lady Lovell, and to enjoy the appendages of her rank, be substantiated or at least something would have been done towards substantiating those claims. But during this time she called herself Mrs. Murray, and the little lady Anna was called Anna Murray. It added much to the hardship of the woman's case that public sympathy in distant parts of the country, up in London and in southern counties, and even among the portion of the gentry in Cumberland and Westmoreland, did not go with her. She had married without due care, Some men said, and many women repeated the story, that she had known of the existence of the former wife when she had married the earl. She had run into debt, and then repudiated her debts. She was now residing in the house of a low, radical tailor, who had assaulted the man she called her husband, and she was living under her maiden name. Tales were told of her which were utterly false, as when it was said that she drank. Others were reported which had in them some grains of truth— as that she was violent, stiff-necked, and vindictive. Had they said of her that it had become her one religion to assert her daughter's right, per fas out nefas, to assert it by right or wrong, to do justice to her child, let what injustice might be done to herself or others, then the truth would have been spoken. The case dragged on slowly. And little Anna Murray was a child of nine years old, when at last the Earl was acquitted of the criminal charge which had been brought against him. During all this time he had been absent. Even had there been a wish to bring him personally into court, the law would have been powerless to reach him. But there was no such wish. It had been found impossible to prove the former marriage which had taken place in Sicily, or, if not impossible, at least no adequate proof was forthcoming. There was no real desire that there should be such proof. The earl's lawyers abstained, as far as they could abstain, from taking any steps in the matter. They spent what money was necessary, and the Attorney-General of the day defended him. In doing so, the Attorney-General declared that he had nothing to do with the earl's treatment of the lady who now called herself Mrs. Murray. He knew nothing of the circumstances of that connection, and would not travel beyond his brief. He was there to defend Earl Lovell on a charge of bigamy. This he did successfully, and the Earl was acquitted. Then, in court, the counsel for the wife declared that his client would again call herself Lady Lovell. But it was not so easy to induce other people to call her Lady Lovell. And now not only was she much hampered by money difficulties, but so also was the tailor but Thomas Thwaite never for a moment slackened in his labours to make good the position of the woman whom he had determined to succour, and for another and a longer period of eight years the battle went on. It went on very slowly, as is the wont with such battles, and very little way was made. The world, as a rule, did not believe that she, who now again called herself the Countess Lovell, was entitled to that name. The Murrays, her own people, as far as they were her own people, had been taught to doubt her claim. If she were a countess, why had she thrown herself into the arms of an old tailor? Why did she let her daughter play with the tailor's child, if in truth that daughter was the Lady Anna? Why, above all things, was the name of the Lady Anna allowed to be mentioned, as it was mentioned, in connection with that of Daniel Thwaite, the tailor's son? During these eight weary years, Lady Lovell, for so she shall be called, lived in a small cottage about a mile from Keswick, on the road to Grasmere and Ampleside, which she rented from quarter to quarter. She still obtained a certain amount of alimony, which, however, was dribbled out to her through various sieves, and which reached her with protestations as to the impossibility of obtaining anything like the moderate sum which had been awarded to her and it came at last to be the case that she hardly knew what she was struggling to obtain. It was, of course, her object that all the world should acknowledge her to be the Countess Lovell, and her daughter to be the Lady Anna. But all the world could not be made to do this by course of law. Nor could the law make her lord come home and live with her, even such a cat-and-dog life as must in such case have been hers. Her money rights were all that she could demand, and she found it to be impossible to get anybody to tell her what were her money rights. To be kept out of the poorhouse seemed to be all that she could claim. But the old tailor was true to her, swearing that she should even yet become Countess Lovell in very truth. Then of a sudden she heard one day that Earl Lovell was again at the Grange, living there with a strange woman. End of chapter one.